Production. Recorded live. Uh, hello again, and welcome back to uh, Restoring America. It's uh, March the 1st, 2015, and today I'm going to continue reading from The Grand Design Exposed about the birth of America, an alternative view to the birth of America, the American Revolution. Uh, this is from the book The Grand Design Exposed. This is uh, part two, Birth of America, part two. And I'm beginning on the book, in the book, in page 312. This is an alternative view to the American Revolution. And the concept of what I'm reading, the basic concept, is that uh, the Catholics had been uh, trying uh, for two or three hundred years to get, to maintain or to get back in control of England. And they had kind of given up in uh, 1745, at least it appears. They had infiltrated through the Masons, the Freemasons, in uh, England. And uh, their goal was to come and get a foothold and uh, some influence in America, where in most of the colonies of America, except for Maryland, they had uh, basically, basically been outlawed, that the... Uh, the persecution, the conflicts, the wars that had come from Europe, that had been in Europe, had been so fresh and raw in the minds of the people that came to America to get away from all of that. Uh, they did not want that coming to America. So the American, most of the American colonies were Protestant, strongly Protestant in uh, many cases. And uh, so you could not be a Catholic and uh, have a public office in those colonies except for Maryland and uh, possibly Pennsylvania, New York also, but uh, primarily Maryland. And the concept was that eventually, uh, through the work of the Freemasons, uh, the Masonic lodges scattered throughout America, uh, the war was fomented uh, starting from Boston and uh, spread through these. And the, uh, the concept is that most of the Americans at that time did not want to go to war, did not want independence from England, but were fully satisfied with their relationship with England. But uh, this was stirred up and fomented into a war. And so at that point they fought. I'm sure that some of the American, the Protestants, like the Scotch-Irish, were very... Uh, were very suspicious, always on guard against the uh, encroachments of the British Empire, the British king, uh, because of their experience in Scotland and Ireland. And they had come to America. They were the poor people out on the frontier. They were slaves and the poor people in, on the frontier and in the south. And so they were very, uh, very dedicated Christian people. And the... Uh, I'm just going to continue reading this. It's, uh, uh, it's not the entire view of what happened. I'm not sure that you could ever know the entire view, but you can get basically the general categories. And this is one of the categories, this is one of the uh, things in the soup there that you need to consider. And remember this because uh, this has become a very uh, influential, powerful concept. Their concept is that uh, the Catholic Church wanted to gain control of the federal government of the United States so that they could uh, take over the United States, so that they could use the United States to advance their new world order. Uh, 
which seems to be what uh, they've done. They've used us, they've used the American military for to accomplish those goals. And there's always two or three layers, two or three alternative, uh, you know, mainstream interpretations of what's going on uh, to stir up the people. So just keep all of this in mind and uh, we'll cover other things later. But I wanted to finish, I wanted to try to get through this book as uh, quickly as I could. Page 312, uh, this is in the uh, chapter about the birth of America. The French were appealed to for help. In the meantime, the Patriot Party and Army had been brought to such hopeless and miserable straits that many were ready to give up the contest completely, unless they could get some outside assistance. And their sad situation was the result of the very least amount of effort that the Howe brothers had used to bear against them. But rather than give up the cause, American statesmen Benjamin Franklin, Silas Dean, and Arthur Lee were sent to Europe as agents of the Continental Congress, unknown to the people at large, to put out feelers for a French alliance that would supply gunpowder, weapons, and military assistance. And as another way to add insult to injury, Americans now united themselves in February of 1778 with France, the nation that 15 years earlier they as Englishmen had fought against, and Protestant England had always considered her arch enemy. The following year, remember that France is, Spa- is primarily Catholic. The following year, Spain, Britain's other major continental antagonist, also joined France against England. It was also natural that the patriot leaders appealed to France for help. It was only natural. Uh, had not the English Catholic nobility always rushed to France to be consoled and plot new strategies when they could not get their way in England? France, France was the role model for Catholicism, the stronghold of the Jesuits, for both the English and American Catholic parents sent their children to be Jesuit educated. It was the French Jesuits who controlled the Jacobite movement against England through the Catholic Freemasonry cover. <coughs> so it is certainly no surprise to find that Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson became members of the French Masonic Freemasonic Lodge of the Nine Sisters. But even more incriminating, this lodge became grandmastered by Benjamin Franklin. He became the grandmaster there, the leader, and was described as the most mystical and esoteric of the French lodges, then the main link between the secret societies of Europe and America. If it seems like this book is opposed to the American independence, to American independence or our American way of life, be assured nothing could be further from the truth. American republicanism and the American Constitution are are both the most elevated institution and noble document ever founded by mortal man. There are problems with the American Constitution. Uh, I may try to get to that before too long. The harshness against the patriot leaders is not because they founded a republican form of government. Far from it. It is because of their hypocritical, ulterior, and deceptive purpose given for why it was created, at least some of them. Some of them. It was their expediency their means to accomplish an end. And if the reader has any doubts as to whether the movement for American independence was a prearranged 
and well-thought-out occultic plan, then please reflect back on the occult symbolism with the governing within the governing seat of Washington, D.C. I would refer you again to uh, some several documentaries. I think there are about six documentaries by Christian J. Pinto. The Founding Fathers, The Secret History of the Founding Fathers is a good one, and uh, some of those others. Just look those up and, uh, and watch them. They're very interesting. They have one about the occult symbolism uh, in Washington, D.C. It's not all just Christian. There is some Christian there, but it's not all just Christian. As evidence it, to reinforce that truth, consider that the patriot leaders wanted to declare their independence not when there were 12 or 14 states, but precisely 13. 13, an important occult number. Friday the 13th and things like that. From the date 1776 to 1789, the Patriots waited precisely 13 years to form this nation's first government. It was precisely 13 years from the American Revolution of 1776 to the Great French Revolution that began in 1789. In the American Great Seal, there are 13 leaves in the olive branches, 13 bars and stripes, 13 arrows, 13 stars in the green crest, and 13 layers of stone in the pyramid. All occult numbers. To Catholic, uh, according to Catholic theology, the Virgin Mary appeared to three shepherd children at Fatima, Portugal on May 13, 1917. And for the next six months, she continued to appear on the 13th of each month. But on the 13th of October, 1917, she then supposedly made the sun to dance. This is one of the Catholic uh, uh, traditions or miracles. The uh, apparitions, the the number 13, then, is significant to the occult, Freemasonry, and Catholicism because, if you remember, it was when the Knights Templar were first arrested on that day of great misfortune, Friday the 13th, 1307, of October 1307. The British commander, General Clinton's war policy. If the policy of the Howe brothers, by a show of great force and troops occupying colonial towns, was intended to intimidate and, with enough time, create antagonism, resentment, contempt towards England, then General Clinton and Cornwallis's policy couldn't help but stoke the fires to white heat, provoking feelings of intense hatred that seethed for revenge. General Clinton and his 14,000 troops made his base of operations in the occupied city of New York. From here, he began a campaign of raiding parties assisted by the British fleet. The first raid was in New, on New Bedford, Massachusetts, under General No Flint Gray, where he destroyed over 70 large vessels besides small craft, burnt the magazines, wharf stores, warehouses, shipyards, together with mills and many houses. He then went to Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, and the Elizabeth Islands, where he destroyed vessels, seized the militia arms, compelled a payment of public money, and took 300 oxen and 10,000 sheep, which were sent back to New York for the army. Other raids during the autumn of 1778 were on Egg Harbor on the coast of New Jersey 
an expedition up the Hudson, and then through Long Island that inflicted heavy losses upon the country, not merely in the burning and destruction of ships and houses and stores, but in the enormous quantities of forage and droves of cattle, horses, and sheep. All of this was done in the very face and defeating every operation of the French fleet, so that its effects not only reduced the northern patriots to a state of great despondency, but had the greater satisfaction of seeing them quarrel with their French allies. Then sudden raids that were so quickly and easily accomplished by the fleet with troops could do their devastating work and, es and escape before any patriot force could even be summoned to oppose them. With the winter coming on with, when campaigning would be difficult in the north, General Clinton now turned his attention toward the southern states. Clinton selected Georgia as the best place to begin his southern conquest, as it was the weakest and easiest to take. By December 1778, Savannah was in his hands, and from there he took complete possession of Georgia at his ease. South Carolina was now considered for the next object of attack, but all during this period, Clinton and his commanders continued on with their method of side war of raids, plunder, devastation, and destruction. Thousands of slaves were rounded up and then sold later by the officers in the West Indies. Their spread, they spread their depredations as far as possible with the burning of houses, crops, food supplies of every kind, slaughtering cattle, horses, and even dogs, and from the rich planters' houses, they took silver plate money, jewelry, and other plunder that was carried off. I think back if you've seen the movie Patriot, the Patriot, with Mel Gibson, it, it gives you a little bit of flavor for what the British were doing at this time in the South. That was in the South. The plundering of the country was reduced to a system where for a long time South Carolina became a frightful scene of anarchy and confusion with plundering, murdering, and confiscating. The devastation of plantations and homes was so complete that the line of a British raid could be traced by the groups of women and children, once of ample fortune, sitting by fires in the woods. Uh, in Virginia, Portsmouth was sacked and burned. Soldiers shot down unarmed citizens and were allowed to ravish delicate and refined women. Suffolk, Kemp's Landing, Gosport, and Tanner's Creek were visited with similar devastations. Everything burned and leveled to the ground, and the neighboring plantations desolated and robbed as far as the troops could reach. <clears throat> 130 ships were destroyed and 3,000 hogsheads of tobacco. At the same time, the North also was again visited, West Point and Maine along with Connecticut, New Jersey towns being sacked. The British Army, in spite of the French and Spanish alliance, could just about go anywhere it chose and wreck its havoc, and with such a puny resistance from the Patriot Army, that in many cases without the loss of a single man. Now all of this was done under instructions from the British ministry sent through Germain and carried out by General Clinton and Lord Cornwallis. <coughs> the, this severe military method had only one effect. And it wasn't to foster love for England. England had now become truly the enemy, the invader, the devastator, murderer, and plunderer. Its effects even alienated from the British interest all the hesitating class and many who were previously loyalists. 
As a natural consequence, the extreme patriots became more desperate and determined than ever, and their hatred of the loyalists increased until they hesitated at scarcely any measures of reprisal and punishment. The Freemasonic plan, guided by Rome, to generate hatred towards England was reaping its effects. Some of the worst atrocities of the war committed by both sides are recorded during those few years. So his idea is that they're doing all of this devastation to just uh, stir up even more hatred toward England. A year had now passed since Georgia had taken had been taken, and with winter again approaching, General Clinton, with 7,000 men in December 1779, sailed out of New York in personal command of his Charleston, South Carolina expedition. He began his proceedings by blockading the entrance to the harbor, then slowly but meticulously for four months, he built siege works surrounding the town, cutting off all avenues of escape. Seven war vessels were brought within cannon fire, uh, cannon shot of the town, and for three days, heavy fire from cannon, mortars, and small arms at close range brought Charleston to a surrender on May the 12th, 1780, inflicting on the Patriots the worst defeat of the war. Charleston was not a large town by our, our thinking today, having at that time only 9,000 white, white people and 5,000 blacks. But it was known for its abundant commerce, refinement, and wealth, which one slave for every which, with one slave for every two whites readily attest. Charleston was important because it gave the British instant control of the whole of Georgia and South Carolina, with good prospects of gaining North Carolina, especially so when the Patriot Army captured inside the town of Charleston was practically the whole Southern Army. Clinton now sailed back to New York, leaving Lord Cornwallis with 5,000 troops in charge of South Carolina. With the British now having gained the utmost advantage, while throughout the Patriot movement there was nothing but renewed depression, gloom, and another starvation period, it seems utterly amazing that within a year and a half, Britain would just give up the war like some beaten, oversized wimp, unless it was all predetermined and planned to be that way. So just uh, just think about this. This is he's suggesting that all of this was uh, the British were not fully committed to winning the war. What is so incredulous is the way England purposely allowed the war to drag on and on and on when the most obvious opportunities to bring it to a swift conclusion were always resolutely ignored. Never mind all the asinine excuses that are given. You do not have to be too bright to see through the many improprieties as being the work of some hidden agenda. And just plain good horse sense would certainly tell anyone that it would, be, it would have been far simpler, much less costly, and saved many precious lives if the revolt had been put down right from the beginning, say, when the rebellious colonists didn't even have gunpowder or the knowledge of, of how to manufacture it, not to mention the Howe brothers' fiasco, instead of prolonging the situation till Britain was fighting, not just in colonial America, but now all over the, the globe. France, the eternal enemy of England, 
was bold in her leadership of assisting the Patriots, and so began to vigorously attack British interests in the West Indies, India, and even England's own home waters, who then roused Spain to action to attack Gibraltar and other British possessions. Holland also opposed England, and Germany and Russia were appealed to by the Patriots. What began as a small colonial uprising was now turned into a war involving all of Europe. It seemed as if it was being made to appear like almost a replay when all of Europe was anticipating the Spanish Armada invasion of England 200 years before, with Cardinal William Allen poised to rush into England and declare a glorious Catholic victory. But George Washington and his army at the time were passing through a period of the greatest depression and helplessness. Washington had not been able to fight a battle for two years and had even considered dissolving his army. His men were naked, starving, without pay, and were mutinying, and he was hard-pressed to borrow food from the French and allow his men to maraud to feed themselves. But no matter how deplorable the conditions or how desperate their despondency, the patriots always seemed to stubbornly hang on and even if it was by a mere thread, a lot of Christian people would see this as God's providence of helping them get through. Just be aware of that. It was like they fully knew their independence was a guaranteed reality if they just played a game and persevered long enough. They need not have worried. Their miracle was waiting in the wings he was the genius of military of British military incompetency and was named Major General Lord Charles Cornwallis. British Major General Cornwallis's fiasco. We now come again face to face with another one of those British military oddities that seemed to so doggedly persist only during the American War for Independence. Cornwallis was an extremely powerful man among the British aristocracy. But much more ominous pertaining to our study was that the whole Cornwallis family was one of the most prominent in English Freemasonry. However, he was the subordinate of his commander-in-chief, General Henry Clinton, and as such, all communication to the British ministry by Cornwallis was to go strictly through his commanding officer. But because of his aristocratic prestige and, of the excuse, and on the excuse that it was more convenient, and would save time, he was given permission to that he could bypass General Clinton first and then give him a report later. It did not take long for Cornwallis to have a better military plan that was quite contrary to General Clinton's policy because his was too slow and was given full approval by the British ministry and Lord Germain to override Clinton's policy and execute his own superior military strategy. Cornwallis, in his subjugation of South Carolina and the exaggerated impression of his victory over Gates at Camden, believed by the ministry so inflated his ego with such overweening confidence that it put him in the envious position to undermine his superior officer. General Clinton's orders were to secure South Carolina as the object of prime importance, not to be jeopardized for any reason. Only after South Carolina was made completely safe was there to be campaigns in the North. But Cornwallis's proposal was for a more aggressive plan 
to march into North Carolina and subdue it, then rally all the loyalists in the state into a militia and with them sweep into Virginia and conquer it. Virginia was the home of patriotism in the South, and through it, Cornwallis felt, was the military key for conquering all the South. So the ministry directed Cornwallis to disregard the plan of his superior officer, while they directed Clinton to support the plan and whatever was requested of his subordinate. This withdrawal of the ministry's confidence in Clinton so disgusted him that he would have resigned and turned his command over to Cornwallis right then, had he been near enough to him. On the 26th of September of 1780, Cornwallis marched into North Carolina and occupied Charlotte, North Carolina. At the same time, Major Ferguson, with 1,500 loyalist militia, moved into western North Carolina. Cornwallis was now out of South Carolina, who despised the orders that it should be his first and most important care. And when the word got out to the Patriot over mountain men of eastern Tennessee and on the other side of the North Carolina mountains, they organized themselves to oppose him and Ferguson. They began by making a number of successful attacks on the garrisons in the interior of South Carolina in Ferguson's rear, and then they took up pursuit of Ferguson. Ferguson knew he was being pursued and was in trouble and sent to Cornwallis for help. But what seems to be so militarily unbelievable is why Cornwallis allowed a detachment of men to be 70 miles from his main body of troops to begin with, or even worse, when he knew Ferguson was in trouble, why he never sent him any assistance. Nor did Ferguson rush toward Cornwallis to be safe. The Overmountain men caught up with Ferguson on a small knoll called King's Mountain and approaching it Indian-style, shooting behind trees and boulders, annihilated them, killing Ferguson and taking 600 prisoners. When word reached Cornwallis of the devastating defeat, he fled North Carolina in a panic back to Winsboro, South Carolina. Now, this is, some of this is what is depicted in that movie, Mel Gibson's movie, The Patriot. This victory so revived the spirit and enthusiasm of the Patriot cause that their raids and attacks on posts within the interior of South Carolina sent loyalists fleeing to Charleston. Cornwallis had to, in a great measure, begin all over again the conquest of South Carolina, which had already been conquered, but lost. He wrote to Clinton requesting a force of men who complied and sent 3,000 under command of General Leslie, (coughs) who was directed to obey the orders of Cornwallis. He went to Charleston on the 14th of December, 1780, and afterwards joined Cornwallis in the interior. In the meantime, the Continental Congress sent to the South three able and suburb commanders, Colonel Harry, Harry Lee of Virginia, the famous light horse Harry Lee, General Daniel Morgan, who were under the command of General Nathaniel Green. Green divided his forces and sent Morgan with about 800 men into South Carolina near the town of 96 to raid, annoy, make sudden surprises, and escape. Cornwallis was now compelled to do something to check Morgan, and so resolved to wipe him out and advance into North Carolina at the same time. He had just received a reinforcement of 
1,500 men under Leslie and so moved northward. Meanwhile, he sent Colonel Tarleton to, to make a, a direct attack upon Morgan to either crush him or force him northward, where Cornwallis with the main body would intercept his retreat and annihilate him, theoretically. Again, Cornwallis made the same mistake of keeping the main body of army so far away that for Tarleton it was useless. Morgan, knowing that Tarleton was coming to attack him and having information of the exact disposition of his forces, retired northward. After marching, however, for two days pursued by Tarleton, he decided to stop and fight Tarleton at a place known as Cowpens. If you're back there, it would be interesting to visit these uh, locations to see if see if there are markers and uh, information about these battles. Calpins is a famous battle. Morgan placed well his 800 men opposed to Tarleton's 1,000. When the Battle of, seven, of January the 17th, 1781 morning was over, Morgan's force had killed 100 Englishmen and taken 600 prisoners with Tarleton barely escaping with his life. Another needless, disastrous British defeat. Morgan made haste going north, where Green soon joined him as they made a mad dash for the Dan River and Virginia border, with Cornwallis in hot pursuit. Cornwallis, now exultant that he had chased Green out of North Carolina, began to enlist loyalists into a militia. However, all Green did was make a circle and re-enter North Carolina and began raiding the Loyalist militia, discouraging the, the recruiting program instantly. Cornwallis tried his best to corner Green for several weeks, but Green was too evasive and avoided battle. On the 14th of March, 1781, Green received 4,400 men from the Northern Patriots and took a position at Guilford Courthouse, where he offered battle. I think this is one of the battles in the in the movie, uh, the Patriot that is depicted there. <clears throat> as soon as Cornwallis saw that Green had chosen a battleground, he attacked him the next day. This was the hottest battle of the Revolutionary War, with neither sides being able to claim full victory. Cornwallis, though, took a terrible thrashing, 600 killed and wounded, including some of his best officers. He left the entire area, retreating to North Carolina's seaport town of Wilmington. Whatever was motivating Cornwallis, it certainly was not in the best interest of England. He was abandoning North Carolina, and even more incredibly, he chose to abandon South Carolina, leaving the interior of both states free for Green to pursue his work. It was not long that all, all the interior British posts in South Carolina were again evacuated with Charleston becoming a city of exiles while everywhere else was in a state of anarchy. The fatal errors of Cornwallis were producing their natural results. Amazingly, there is more to the story. While the while in the short time the whole fabric of British military operations were being ir irretrievably wrecked by the folly of Lord Cornwallis, he was deceiving his home government that everything was outstandingly successful. So he was sending, he was sending reports back home that everything is going great. In his letters to the ministry, he describes his march through North Carolina as a grand triumphal progress 
the Battle of Guilford Court as a wonderful victory, and his retreat to Wilmington as a mere continuation of that same fantastical triumphal progress. Cornwallis now heads to for Virginia. In response to Cornwallis, who had given the British ministry and General Clinton the impression that both South and North Carolina were being favorably secured, the ministry then directs Clinton to cooperate with Cornwallis in his soon invasion of Virginia by sending a sizable force there to meet him. Clinton again complies by sending Benedict Arnold, the American trader, with 50 sail of vessels and about 1,500 men who entered the James River during the last weeks of December 1780, which was before Cornwallis had his crushing battle at Guilford Courthouse in March of 1781. Clinton later sent another 2,000 troops to Virginia under General Phillips. Both Arnold and Phillips conducted their destructive raids as far as Richmond and Petersburg, Virginia, and though Virginia was the most populous and wealthy of the American states of that time, it was unable to offer the slightest resistance. And then Arnold had been satisfied, and when Arnold had been satisfied, he retired to Portsmouth opposite Norfolk and established himself securely. So the British were seemingly uh, in control of things. Clinton now, by sending out numerous detachments to Cornwallis, 3,000 under Leslie, 1,500 under Benedict Arnold, and 2,000 under Phillips, had so weakened his own position that the patriots under George Washington were strongly considering attacking him in New York. And about now it began to leak out that all was not so well with the Wonder Boy genius in the, in the South. Cornwallis, having full knowledge of the deplorable condition of his campaigns, had left the South, offers not a slightest, the slightest assistance for its rescue and defense, but unbelievably moves into Virginia. And French money was on the way for the Patriots and a large French fleet coming with Admiral de Grasse. De Grasse. Cornwallis arrived in Petersburg, Virginia on May the 20th, 1781, to find that General Phillips had died a few days before, leaving him in full command of Virginia, the key to the South, as he had so often called it. But on the 26th of May, he writes to Clinton, confessing utter weakness and the complete failure of the past winter's campaign, which a month before he had described as uniformly successful. He makes a march of devastation through Virginia, his men going as far west as Charlottesville, where they actually captured seven members of the Patriot legislature, while the rest, with Governor Thomas Jefferson, fled to Staunton in the western mountains. Returning to the James River, Cornwallis wanders around trying to make up his irresponsible and confused mind a military decision for the best place that would offer a strongly fortified headquarters. True to form, like all of his military decisions, he chose Yorktown, the worst of all places. Cornwallis, now literally up a river, watches as Patriot land forces begin to converge and surround him. He watches as the French fleet enters Chesapeake Bay and blocks off York River. He watches French troops being landed to join with the Patriot forces. In face of all this, and with more than ample time to have escaped, 
he chooses to complacently sit until all ways of escape are virtually closed. Now this, you have to admit, is either the mind of a military idiot or if, from a Freemasonic viewpoint, the mind of a military genius. Whichever the Patriot land forces combined with Lafayette, Wayne, and St. Simon numbered 8,800 Americans and 7,800 French. So this was a large force. In addition to the two French fleets of de Grasse and de Barras numbering 40 ships of the line, mounting 2,000 guns and manned with 20,000 soldiers was enough to bring the surrender of Yorktown on, on October the 19th, 1781, defended by 7,500 troops and 840 sailors. The pre-Masonic American Revolution stage show was now theoretically over. Remember, this is his an alternative view of what's going on, another angle to look at what was going on. Did Cornwallis receive English condemnation or become ostracized for surrendering his British army to rebels and militiamen like Burgoyne at Saratoga? No, quite the contrary. He was given high office and honors, including the governor generalship of India within a year. General Clinton was so angry that he tried in vain to force Cornwallis to a duel but he never would accept the challenge. By April 1782, Clinton resigned and returned to England. Also by April 1782, British Admiral Rodney literally annihilated the French fleet, capturing Admiral de Grasse's flagship and made de Grasse a prisoner of war. The British still held New York with 10,000 troops. They held Wilmington in North Carolina, Savannah in Georgia, and most important of all, Charleston, which at the time was the capital and to a great ex extent the strategic position of the South. Regardless of still being a formidable force in the colonies, England called it quits, negotiated and signed the Treaty of Peace in, in Paris, of course, on September the 3rd, 1783, whose American envoys had earlier announced that they would make no peace except with the consent of France. So by giving France her main object in the war, namely American independence, the British ministry then demanded great concessions from the French court in settling the general European treaty. Poor deluded France, she danced so wonderfully and in such perfect rhythm to the tune being played. Remember, the first great Masonic convention was held at La Gaulle, France in 1768, the same year that British troops were landed at Boston. In 1773, the Jesuit order was allegedly dissolved. In the year 1776, America declared her independence, which just happened to be the very same year Adam Weishaupt founded the Bavarian Illuminati. Yorktown surrendered October 1781, and less than a year later, the second great Masonic convention was held at Willemsbad, Germany, in July 1782. A year after that, the peace treaty was signed in September 1783. America now had her independence, 
France ceded to England almost all that she had won during the war so that America would have that independence. And now France was utterly bankrupt, providing the perfect catalyst that brings on her own 1789 Great Revolution. And all of this was mere coincidence. I'm going to stop reading right there. That's... uh, just very interesting history about the birth of America. The suggestion he is making here, the theory he is presenting, is that uh, the British did not really uh, fully want to win the war in America. Uh, and there were other things going on beside this. So uh, just uh, consider this as very interesting thoughts about what was going on. Thank you for listening and uh, I will be back again before too long. Thank you very much.